we're in the midst of a sermon series called uh, The Divinity of Jesus. It's during the season of Epiphany where we are considering Epiphany in the church calendar means to reveal, to make known. And we've been considering how Jesus makes himself known and reveals himself in Scripture as not just a, a great ethicist and moral teacher, um, not just as someone, and that would be enough to want to follow. There are, there are great moral teachers and people who teach ethics throughout space and time that were worth listening to and following, um, people like Dr. King and Gandhi and others. But then there's Jesus, who isn't just kind of a spout, spouting out like great thoughts. He is the source of all these things. And um, this is something that in in early first century, they wouldn't have considered Jesus having to be divine. Um, and that just wouldn't even be a process that they would go through. But it was clearly seen by his disciples that they were going, no, 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 this is, this is not just a good moral teacher. This is truly God himself who showed up. Uh, this is the I am. And John, at the end of the first century, pens all these words down. He's bringing a different perspective for us to, to consider. And, and one of the things of John's writings that you see throughout, whether it's this gospel or his epistles or even in the book of Revelation, is this idea of enduring, like making it, making it to the end. Have you ever, have you ever like tried to make it through something to the end? Like you started and you were all hyped and you got to the end of it and you were like really proud of it, or maybe you got halfway through it and you're like, you know what, it's not worth it. I'm just not going to do this workout. Like, I know what I said on January 1st, but it's January 10th, not going to do it. Like, you, if you had, I was actually thinking about that for me. I remember, so I went to a, a, a weird Christian college called Oral Roberts University. I liked it, but it was weird, okay? And um, like, it was, the thing is, when you drove up to the campus, uh, they have the they have the second largest bronze structure in the world. In the world, do you know what it is? Anybody? Praying hands, right? Two hands. You know, like the emoji. It's that we just have it in in a big old bronze structure in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And the joke was always, if you throw a dollar at it, it'll open up. Uh, that was the joke. If you don't get it, then sorry. Okay, that's prosperity gospel stuff. So the idea was is that like these big old praying hands and you'd go up to the campus and that was it. And so that's where I went to school because I thought that would best further my education in life. And so I went there. But I remember I decided I wanted to, to be in leadership on campus. And one of the highest kind of platforms for leadership was something called a resident advisor. Was anybody a resident advisor? Yeah, there's a few of us here. Okay, so if you're an RA, Basically, what that meant is you had to be the police for people your age, uh, and it was horrible, <laughs> and nobody liked you, and it really wasn't worth the money you got in scholarship. Am I right? Okay, so, because you didn't like them, um, so, but, I, but to be an RA at Oral Roberts University, like, you had to go through something they called Hell Night, all right, Hell Night, and here's how Hell Night worked. Um, it's, it's basically somebody would come on a random night. You, they would not tell you for everybody who's in the process. They would come to your room sometime between 1 and 2 in the morning. If you were asleep, bang on the door and wake you up. If you weren't asleep, which who's asleep in college at that time? And then they would just say to you, you have 10 minutes to be down in the courtyard. So I remember the night somebody came to the room, and I think I was like playing games or I don't know, like eating Taco Bell or something like the things you would do in college. And so uh, I remember, I remember somebody coming to the door saying, 
Robin, we'll see you down in the courtyard in 10 minutes. And so me and a bunch of other guys, it was really cold. It was, it, it was I think, in like sometime in January or February, really cold outside. Uh, and, but like I had shorts on and a short sleeve shirt. And for the next four hours, they took us through all these crazy workouts. Things like um, you had to do like as many squats as possible until you fell down. Uh, you had to hold these huge uh, metal poles out in front of you, arms extended, and then another group on the other side, and then somebody would get up and do push-ups on them. You had to roll up. This is also called hazing. Or just I, I know. I know what I was involved with, okay? You had to roll uphill and downhill. Uh, you had to do sit-ups until you threw up. You had to do push-ups until you couldn't move. This is what we did for four hours. For four hours, that's what I did. And I made it through. I made it through. It's one of the greatest accomplishments of my life, all right? <laughs> not, not help giving birth to Charlotte and bringing her to this world, not marrying Suzanne, like none of those things. It's making it through hell night. That's what I'm proud of. That's top of the list for me because very few people could make it. And I remember I would just, you would just have to like throw up and then keep going. And then I also like had an exam that next morning. And I remember I go in there and, and the professor looks at me and, and I was like, oh, I had hell night. He's like, what? And, and I took the test and I literally got every question. Like I knew the test, but I got every question backwards. That's how out of it I was. He ended up giving me a good grade. It all worked out. The point is like I made it through. I made it through. And you may have something in your life that you're like, man, I made it through. I'm really proud of that. But then you look at Christianity and you look at the life of Jesus and what he's asking out of you and out of me. And I don't know about you, but I have these questions sometimes. Can I make it through? Like, can I make it to the end of this thing? Because this is big and it's a lot and it's hard and it costs so much. And if you're like me, you even know people in your life that had to stop. They had to stop. They, they couldn't continue with it. They had to go, this is not worth it to me. I don't, I don't like what I'm seeing. I don't like what I'm experiencing. And what Jesus is doing here, he's speaking to all of us. Those of us who have stopped, those of us who are still trying to keep going. And he has something to say that I think is going to be helpful. And this is a passage that, that theologians and pastors have taught on for hundreds of years. And as I was thinking about this, I kept trying to think like, is there something profound I could say? And I spent all week long trying to think of something profound to say. And then I realized, no, I don't. Like everything profound that could be said about this has been said. There are lots of great books out there and lots of people smarter than me. What I do want to bring out though is, I think are four things that are appropriate for us as a congregation to consider. Like just as one of your pastors, here are four things I think that are important for us to look at, to consider. These aren't going to be the greatest insights you ever heard. They're not going to be things that even change your life. They are going to be things I think that are appropriate though to where you are, where I am, and especially in our context that we're in here in Midtown. Now before I begin, that first verse, let's just look at it here for a second. Jesus is talking to his disciples here in this upper room, and he says something kind of interesting and strange. He goes, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now, this visual, this metaphor, what he's trying to conjure up here is something that was very dear to the hearts of any good Jewish man, woman, or child, that as a, as a people group, Israel was considered the vine of God this vine that came down out of heaven into the world. Matter of fact, and I'll put it on the screen for you, in Psalm 80, 
verse 8, it says, You brought a vine out of Egypt and drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and it shoots to the river. This is Israel. Israel was meant to be this great vine that had branches coming out of it. And then it would provide shade, so much shade, it would even bring shade to the mountains. That it was meant to expand throughout all the world, all the vastness of it. Now the truth of the matter is, Israel didn't become that. Israel ended up being a very ingrown, and you could even say a racist way of dealing with the world around them. It became very elite, and it was hard for anyone to get in. Now, once you got in, you got all the access to Yahweh, heaven on earth, but it was so hard to get in. And God to them was saying, you're, you're forgetting the whole point of you was so that you could provide shade for the whole world. You could be this access point for me to all of my, all of my creation. And then Jesus shows up, and he takes this visual of a vine, and the first thing he says is, I am the true vine. Like all of Israel was just simply leading up to me. The point of all that was a foreshadowing, and that I am the true vine. And he's even going to go into now that not only am I the vine, you are these branches. You are now the ones, all of you, both Jew and Protestant, or Jew and Gentile. All of you now will be a part of these branches that bring covering to all the world. And so these four observations, I think, that are important for us, Jesus is going to, I believe, kind of... Um, illuminate us somewhat here. So let's look at it. The first observation is this. Jesus will hurt us. Welcome to church. Jesus will hurt us. You are going to get hurt by Jesus. You can tweet that, quote that. If you hear nothing else this morning, you can hear that. So let's look at verse 2. He says, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, I'm not good with gardening, okay? I've had, I've, I have like, if you want me to kill something in your house that's green, let me go at it, okay? So I'm not, I'm not going to be good at that. And so for me, I'm speaking more out of just study. And there's some of you that may have actually grown grapevines here in Memphis. I have no idea if that can even happen, but maybe that's something you're really into, and you're welcome to correct me later on if you want, just not right now. So, I have a visual for you. I'll put it up on the screen. This is just something really simple, and it kind of shows you like a vine and branches. And what you do is that you build a trellis, and the trellis is the structure there that has two poles and kind of a wire there across. And what you would want to do is the vine would grow wild. So you wanted the vine as it's growing up and the branches are shooting out to have them latch on to something, right, so that it could grow and flourish as much as possible. Now, people who were um, gardeners who had vineyards, that was a very common thing within the ancient Near East, okay? People loved their wine and people love their grapes, and this is what they would, everybody to an extent would know someone who had a vineyard, making their own wine, doing whatever they need to with their own produce. And so Jesus is using a visual that actually would be pretty common and pretty useful for them, something they'd all be pretty familiar with. And he's saying that I am the vine here, I'm the source, and you are 
you are the branches. And then he says that he's going to, the translation in your Bible probably says take away, and then he prunes. He takes away and prunes. Now, these two words, I'm not going to put them on the screen, but these two words uh, in the Greek are arrow and then catharsis. And the idea behind them is arrow really doesn't necessarily mean take away, it means to take up. So here's what he's trying to say. There are branches that get off the trellis and they fall into the dirt. Some of you are there, he's saying. Some of you have fallen off the trellis that I've created and you fall into the dirt. I'm going to lift you up and put you back on the trellis and clean you off. He's not saying how he's going to cut them off. This has been something that the church has wrestled with, different translations, different scholars. He's not saying how he's going to cut you off. He's saying, I'm going to lift you up, which is much different, wouldn't you agree? I'm going to lift you up out of the ground. Okay, you're not being, you're not being useful. You're not being used for all your grace ability. And if you stay in the dirt, you're never going to be able to see any of the sunlight, and you're never going to grow. So I'm not going to cut you off. I'm going to lift you up back on the trellis, clean you off, and let you go back to growing. The second thing, though, he says, this is where the pain comes in. He goes, I'm going to prune you. Now, there's no way to get around pruning. Pruning is painful. Okay, pruning means you get out a pruning knife and you go to cutting. And this would happen in the dead of winter every year with vineyards, that you would go and you would find the the parts that need to be cut off, that's extra, that's not, that's actually could be causing disease, right? That's going limp and dead. Cut it off because it's going to suck all the nutrients out from the rest of it. And he's saying to us, I'm going to have to prune you. I'm going to have to cut you up. Not everything in your life is worthwhile keeping if you're going to be on this trellis. That if you want to grow in me and be as useful as possible for me and in my kingdom to be a shade for all the world to come and find respite and refreshment from, we're going to have to cut some things up here and it's going to hurt. Now that's something that we don't like to hear. In general, Christianity today, I would say, I would say it forever, but especially today has a really low threshold of pain, a real low threshold of pain. That if times are hard, then maybe you need to get out of it. That if there's too much pressure or too much suffering, then something's wrong. Either God's not involved or I need to get out of it. Now, there's a a quote here from Tim Keller. He's a a writer and, and theologian and pastor. He says, Christianity teaches that contra fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. Suffering isn't a wrong thing. Suffering many times is a necessary thing. Pruning isn't a wrong thing. There are things in your life that you found that God has cut out. And guess what? If you didn't cut them out, what's happened in your life? Poison. Disease. You find yourself spiritually bankrupt. 
And you have a choice in that, friends. Jesus shows up to you and he goes, can I cut this off? And you can fight him tooth and nail over it and he'll let you have it. But then if you're willing, he'll also cut it off so you can have more growth. Now for, there's a lot of you in here that's not going to be able to connect with this, but there's many of you that can. A year ago, on this day, there was a lot of cutting off. There was a lot of things this church had to start considering if it was going to live with disease or if it was now going to try to find health. And by the grace of God, I look around this room and I see people who are here, people who are committed, people who said, I want to be a part of what God is doing. I want to find more health and growth in my life. But I don't think anybody here a year ago was going, well, this is going to be a fun year. This is all just going to work out just fine. Like, I just can't wait for this. Some of you even showed up for the first time in the first couple months of last year, and you're like, oh, man, this is going to be a lot. I just got to stay and watch it. You had no idea if you wanted to be a part of it. You just wanted to watch it go down. I mean, there's something about, though, experiencing having things cut off. Now, here's the beauty of where we are today. Um, I would say that this church has never been healthier. I would say this church has never been more full of life. I would say this church has never, in a sense, been more in line with what God has asked of her to be than it is today. And that's because we have allowed God to do pruning. But nobody in here would say, it felt great. I loved every minute of it. No, it was hard. There were tears, there were questioning, and there may still be. There are like aches in the body for you. Some of you didn't even know, some of you didn't even know that maybe this was coming up, but you just kind of felt off. That's something I've been prepping our, our leadership team, elders, women's council, staff, others going, hey, a year is going to be coming up here soon. People are going to feel it in the body, even if they don't realize it in the head. Because you're just like, man, spiritually, things can get heavy. It's a heavy time. But God has been at work. The suffering hasn't been futile. The suffering has purpose to it. The question is, do you let God prune the things in your life, or are you trying to keep things back and away from Him? Now, let me be clear on this. Many of us grew up in a world that said hurt is wrong. If you're ever hurt, that means something's wrong. But there's a difference between hurt and harm. If you're in a relationship and you aren't hurting, then you're not in a relationship. Like, if, if you're in a marriage and the other person doesn't hurt you, you're not married. You have a roommate. If all of your friendships are people who just kind of keep you happy and you keep them happy, those aren't friendships. Those are acquaintances. You don't get to do life in relationship without hurting. But the difference between hurt and harm is someone who hurts you isn't trying to emotionally or spiritually manipulate or abuse you. You may feel spiritually and emotionally set off by them, confronted by them, but they're not doing it to you intentionally. And that when you talk to them about that, they're willing to own it, repent, apologize, and then change. That's hurt that can lead to healing. But then if you have a relationship in your life where someone is mindless in how they are harming you, of what they're saying to you and doing to you, being racist to you, and then when you confront them on that, they don't change, that's a harmful relationship. Jesus isn't harmful, Jesus is hurtful. But in his hurt, there is help. And there's the difference. The question is, are we willing to let him be a person 
be this God who comes and cuts out the things that are unneeded so that we can finally grow into the things that we're looking for and desire. Because when pain can be a part of a relationship, you won't have to spend all of your time getting away from that person. See, if you allow pain to be part of your relationship with God, you'll find that your relationship with God can go to new places. Just like if you allow pain to be a part of your marriage or friendships and realize hurt's a part of it, you'll find there's a greater depth to go to. So first, Jesus brings the pain. Two, second observation, abiding is intentional. Abiding is intentional. Look at verse four. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, there are two parts to this I want us just to kind of break down. Two parts. First is us in him. Notice what he says, beginning of verse 4. Abide in me. You go and be in him. Now, that's kind of like weird language. Let's just try to break this down for a minute. This word meno in the Greek, abide, I don't have it on the board here on the screen, but I'll just kind of tell it to you. It means to be present and remain present. To be present and remain present. Now let's try to like talk this out just a little bit. It means to have sustainability in a relationship. It means to be there. It means not to go somewhere. It means to remain, remain right there. That there's nothing else you need to do to abide except to stay right here and remain. But isn't that hard? Because when you see all the things happening in your life, you want to get out of it. When you see the hurt coming, the pain coming, we don't want to remain there. We want to like our knee-jerk reaction is to get out of it. Now the visual he's bringing is, I'm going to bring a pruning knife to your life. And you're going to be like, oh, this sounds great. Can't wait. It's going to be really good. I'm going to grow. 2018 is the year of me and Jesus, Jesus becoming BFFs. It's going to be fantastic. And then he starts pruning you, and you're like, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. This is not worth it. Like, I can't be spending all this time with you. We got to find something else. I'm going to go numb myself out with alcohol now. All right, thanks a lot. Like, something along those lines. Like, I got to get away from this. I got to go work more. Right? I got to go find satiation more. I've got to go get away from this because it's too much pain being with you, Jesus. But to remain means that we stay present in the moment with ourselves and we just remain there. We don't go anywhere. Anne Voskamp, she said, and she pulls from this famous quote from, Elizabeth, from uh, Jim Elliott that said, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt in every situation you determined to be the will of God. So she's pulling from this quote from Jim Elliot. Wherever you are, be all there. Is possible as I give thanks for what is just now. This is meeting God who is the great I am. I am fills the present moment. I am learning that gratitude ushers into the grandeur of he who spills with glory now. Giving thanks is a way to be all here a way to meet the I am who is here. The way you remain present with yourself, with God, is simply recognizing what's happening and somehow be able to say, thank you. Not, what are you doing? Get away. But when you can start saying thank you in the midst of whatever's happening, 
You're abiding in a way that others will look at and go, what is going on there? Like that is crazy. You could be that thankful in the midst of those kind of circumstances. To remain present is to see that the great I am is at work in your life, and he's not here to harm you. He's here to prune you, and it will hurt, but it actually can change you. And you start finding yourself more naturally just giving thanks for it. Thank you that I have a spouse. I'll give you an example. Earlier this week, Suzanne and I were getting into it. Doesn't matter. It just happens, all right? In the Abbey home, we throw down sometimes. So we're getting into it. I was uh, letting her know how she was getting things wrong. She didn't believe me on that point. And so as we kept kind of talking through it, she came back to me as we had this thing where we call timeouts. Uh, if you don't do it, I would try it, uh, especially if you get really hyped and, and going in the midst of the moment. And that's when, when the voices raise too much and when there's so much energy and you're not hearing the other person, somebody will call a timeout. And that means to stop that thing we're doing and give it 24 hours to rest. And then whoever calls the timeout within 24 hours has to call time in. All right? There you go. That's about six months worth of counseling. It's free. <laughs> Take it and use it. If you don't, that's your own problem. So, like, calling timeouts is really helpful. And so we, we called a timeout. And, uh, and then the next day we're talking on the phone. And Suzanne started talking about what it was like for her, what she was seeing about the two of us, ways that we needed to change. And I found myself smiling to the point I was laughing on the phone. And I had to stop myself because I was like smiling like, this woman is reading my mail. She's telling me off and I, I'm going to have to change some things. But I found myself going, gosh, it's so great to be known. Like she just sees it. Like, I don't, I, I can't skirt around it. I can't fake her out of it. There's no juking here. She just sees it. And I found myself actually smiling. And like, why am I smiling? Like, she's wrong. But I was like, no, I'm probably wrong and I need to change. Like, it was, it was weird and it was great. Now, that doesn't happen all the time. Trust me. <laughs> it doesn't happen all the time. But it can happen a lot of the time. Just to allow the process to be there. And that when I remain in those moments of gratitude, I find myself being present. I find myself staying in it and not having to get away. Being present in the midst of all things and finding God is what it means to abide. Being present in the midst of all things and able to find God is what it means to abide. So the second part to this, it's not just us and him, it's him and us. And this is a part that is both mystical and beautiful. It says at the, at the second part of, of, of verse 4, as a, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And he says at the beginning, abide in me and I in you. I in you. Now this right here would be the start of a doctrine that would be called union with Christ. Union with Christ. And this is a very mystical idea that theologians have just had to go, we don't really get it, but we know it's there. One, one writer put it this way, Jesus gave us the vine and branches illustration. Through this, our eyes are open to the secret of the universe. And here it is, union, the mystery of the universe. How can two be one, yet remain two? The living God, the living Christ, and I actually become one person and function as one person. We function entirely and forever and naturally as one person, and yet we remain two. Now, you don't have to get that. 
It's just a matter of, do you see that? Can you let that be there? That's not something you wrap your mind around and go, I got it. Makes complete sense to me. I think C.S. Lewis put it best when he said, the only thing that separates me and God is my skin. He said, the only thing that separates me and God is my skin. Like somehow, some way, God comes and embodies me. And he is in me, I am in him. Now, this isn't how you want to start a conversation with somebody outside of church, right? How you doing? I'm fine. I'm great. God's in me. Okay. <laughs> that's a good conversation. What's your church again? Okay, good. So, I mean, like, that's not something you want to start a conversation with usually. And yet, it's a promise given to us in Scripture that somehow the living God abides in you. Now, just think for a second. Think of even all the worst things you've done in the last week. The worst things you've thought, the worst ways you've acted, the times you felt the loneliest from God, and those, you know those moments you did something, you feel really lonely, like I'm a, I'm a sinner, I'm a horrible person. Now, think about this. He abides in you. He was there. He's not trying to get away from you. He's actually trying to help you remember that he's in you. He's not trying to, like, shame you into change. He's just in you to help bring change. You're no longer working from the outside in. He's now working from the inside out. And that's completely different. I know that's not very understandable. I know that sounds mystical and strange. I'm not the one that wrote it. Jesus is the one that said it. Others are the ones that write about it. But it's there. Somehow it's there. And when you start seeing that he's in you, working from the inside out, in the midst of your perfidy, in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your shame, that you don't have to talk him into coming near you, but he's already in you, that changes things. You're no longer working behind the eight ball trying to catch up in life. You now wake up realizing that you're not a sinner trying to live like a saint. You're just a saint who ends up sinning sometimes. That's a paradigm shifter. When you realize that you can live that way in and out of him. Union, union with Christ. Number three, we can be useful or useless. We could be useful or useless. Let's look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. I don't know if you've ever tried to put together a piece of Ikea furniture, but like it's hard, okay? Especially you, the way they've set it up is like you have to read all the instructions. Has anybody ever tried to do it without reading the instructions? Right? Okay. All right. Me too. I guess we're similar. And if, if, if you're like me, it didn't work out. Uh, like I, I ended up with like five extra pieces and I'm like, ah, it doesn't matter. And I remember one time I tried to put together like a desk at the office and, uh, and Drew and uh, walked in and he was like, what, what is this? Oh, it's the desk. What are all those parts there? We don't need those parts. <laughs> we don't need those parts. Just throw them in the garbage, put them away in a drawer. The reality is you need the parts because when the desk is still moving around and all wobbly, right, and janky, you're like, something's wrong here. They had to like take it apart. And I'm like, well, I'm done with this. I'm not doing this anymore. I was like, a, you know, just being really dramatic. And they're like, okay, fine, we'll handle it. Dramatic Iranian, like just, you just go and let us do this thing here. There's, the way they set it up, you have, you have, to, you have to use the instructions. Um, 
one philosopher, and I've been trying to wrap my brain who said it, uh, but there was one philosopher that talked about that the way that you know something is good is when it's used for the thing that it was meant for. Like, for example, this is an iPad. Now, if I were to say to you, if I were to ask you, what makes this a good iPad? Would it be if I could, like, play catch with you? Throw it? Oh, fun. Throw it back. Thanks a lot. Would it be if, if I could, like, uh, hammer down nails with it? Would that make it a good iPad? Uh, if I could serve food off of it? Some of you are going, sure, why not? That'll work just fine. The same people that tried to put together Ikea pieces without reading the instructions. You're probably thinking, it's fine. No, like, you use, the way you know something is, is being, is useful is if it's used for what it was made for. That's it. If you, if you put it together and use it in all the ways it was designed for. Now, Jesus is telling us something here. You're never going to be useful in life until you let me use you. You're never going to find the use in life you're looking for until I can use you. Like he even says here, like you can do nothing without me. Now, if you're like me, you're going, uh, sure. Like I can like stand on one leg without you just fine. This is, you know, I can raise my hand. I can eat whatever meal I want to. Like I can go talk to these people. I don't need you to do any of those things, Jesus. You know, it's not like I have to go, can, can, I, can I do this now, Jesus? Is that okay? Like nobody's doing that. So what's he saying that you can do nothing without me? I think this is where the recovery world helps us out a lot. Any of you that have friends in the recovery world that try to work something called the 12 steps, if anybody's in recovery longer than a minute, what they'll find out is, is that there's a difference between white knuckling and being sober, okay? White knuckling and being sober. So if you're trying to get off and stay away and quit drinking, okay, that you could just go in those rooms and be like, well, I'm done drinking and, and, uh, and I'm not going to worry about any of these steps of trying to be dependent on a higher power or try to give my life over to him. I decided just to quit drinking and it's all going to work out just fine. And anybody in those rooms will tell you like, yeah, 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 he won't stay around. She won't be here very long. Okay. Because the whole point of it is if you do it in and of your own strength, it's going to have to fail at some point in time. It's like trying to lift up something that's just so incredibly heavy. Yeah, you're doing it for a while. You're impressing everyone. But at some point in time, you're not going to be able to do it anymore. It's going to fall down. And it's going to get worse than it was before. That the way that you live a life of recovery and sobriety isn't by doing what's called white knuckling. It's by surrendering. Like, I can't, I can't be sober. So I need a God big enough that can keep me sober. Like, I'm not powerful enough to manage my own life. Every time I try to manage my life, it becomes more and more insane. Now, if I weren't even to put steps to that and recovery to that, you would agree, wouldn't you? Like, we go, I find my life gets so insane. You ever find the thing you keep touching? No, I got this. Let me just touch it more. Let me just do this more. I'll, I'll fix it. And everybody around you is going, stop. Like, you're making it worse. You're really bad at life. We need you to stop. And you're like, no, 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 I got this. And you just destroy things because you think you got it. You think you can put it together without the instructions. You think you can use an iPad to play catch. That's stupid. That's also normal. That's how many of us deal with life. You actually aren't powerful enough to manage your own life. You need help. You're not good enough to make your own decisions. You need somebody to carry you in the midst of it. And that's where Jesus comes in. He goes, until you learn to really live in me, 
and then me and you, you'll do things that you think are successful but really are failures. Dale Moody, he said, our greatest fear should not be a failure but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Let me put it this way. There's a way for you to live life and still miss out on it. There's a way for you, let me put it another way, there's a way for you to be used or you think that you're using life the way you're supposed to, but still you find yourself useless. It's, it's a conundrum of sorts. And notice something here. When he says that those of you who don't abide in me are cut off, you wither and thrown into a fire, we want to do things like, well, you see, there you go. So I've had to wrestle with this. Like we want to say, okay, so that means hell. So if you don't let Jesus abide in you and you abide in him, you're going to go to hell. That's what people try to break this passage into. Now, I'm not trying to erase hell. What a preposterous statement. Like, I'm not trying to erase hell. I just don't think Jesus is as interested in hell as he is as interested in you having more of life. I don't think he's as interested in calling out how you're getting closer to hell as much as how there's more life for you to come have. I think what he's trying to say here to us, if we're going to even take this metaphor and kind of tease it out more, is sure, live your life the way you think you want. And you'll find that you're as good and as useful as these dead branches that wither up, and the only thing they're left to be good for is to be fueled to heat up like a stove. It's still useful. It's still getting some use out of it, but not the original tent. There's a way for you to deliver your life, and you still have use in this world, but it not be the way you originally intended. Sure, you'll be used as fuel. You'll light it up from time to time but it's not going to be the growth you were looking for. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to call out for us. There's a way that you will, if you're not careful, end up being useless, not to your full intent of what I've called you to be. And the fourth thing, the fourth observation, abiding creates neediness. Verse 7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. I love this passage. I love the simplicity of it, these verses. Because to really abide in him, if we realize that we're powerless, that we can't figure out life on our own terms, we need help and we start living in and out of him, we find that we become more needy. Like it's the difference between wanting God and needing God. Some of us in here live in a place of just wanting God. Like, God, I want you to come move in my life, but you don't need him. God, I want you to come and fix my marriage. I want you to come and, you know, bring direction, but you don't really need him. And you wonder why he doesn't show up. Like when we really need God, we are powerless over life. And we realize we have nowhere else to turn. It's when Jesus has all these hard statements in in John chapter 8 and and people leave him. He's like, unless you eat of my body and drink my blood, you cannot be with me. And everybody's like, 
uh, we're out. <laughs> we were into this until we, got, until we got to cannibalism. Like, thanks a lot, but no. And so Jesus then turns to his disciples and goes, okay, are you going to leave me as well? And Peter goes, where else can we go? You have the words of life. If you're wondering why you're still stuck, a good chance is you think you can get yourself unstuck. If you wonder why you don't grow, it's a chance because you think you can find the growth needed. That if you water it enough, give it enough sunlight, somehow you're the one that's making it grow. And it's an insane way to live. Now here's the thing. Many of us in this room can't get there until you've had your own personal crisis. If you're always trying to live above the perfidy and pain of life, you can't have a crisis. There's a good chance you've had about five crises, five crises in your life. Is it crises? Crisi? What? Anyway, you've had a lot. And like everybody else is around you and going, you just got your arm blown off. And you're like, no, I didn't. It's fine. Yeah, but you can't eat with that hand anymore. It'll be fine. I'll figure it out. I'm good. And like, okay, man, whatever. Like you just keep doing your thing in life and being insane. You're not growing, you're not flourishing because you think you can get yourself to that point. Therefore, you only want God. But when life really hits you, and I mean hits you, and it beats you down, and you have nowhere else to go, you move from want to need. Okay, God, if this is what you want, I'll do it, fine. I don't know how this works, but okay. If you want me to remain here in the midst of the pain, okay. Yeah, I see you got that pruning knife out. I don't want to have any hurt, but okay. Earlier this week, I was reflecting on, there's a, there's a, a part, a line from C.S. Lewis that I pray regularly about, God, would you please come and untie the parts of my life that are knotted together and tie together the parts of my life that are dangling loose? I started reflecting on that. I was like, where did I get that from? And uh, it's from The Four Loves, and I put it in your bulletin. It says, every Christian would agree that man's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his love for God. But man's love for God from the very nature of the case must always be very largely and must often be entirely a need love. This is obvious when we implore forgiveness for our sins or support in our tribulations. But in the long run, it is perhaps even more apparent in our growing For it ought to be growing awareness that our whole being by its very nature is one vast need. Incomplete, preparatory, empty yet cluttered. Crying out for him who can untie things that are now knotted together and tie up things that are still dangling loose. Do you have things in your life that are still knotted together? And the more you try to untie it, it gets tighter. Do you have things in your life that are dangling loose? And the more you try to tie them together, they get further and further apart. If so, Jesus has a response to you. Abide in me. I'm wanting to abide in you. Abide in me. Come to me. Surrender to what I'm asking out of you. Yes, it's going to hurt. Yes, you're not going to want to lose that. Yes, you're going to be convicted. But if you let it happen, child, 
you'll find that you're moving from a, a want of me to now a need of me. And in the midst of the need of me, the life that you've been looking for to be useful and not useless. And if that's you this morning, then we're going to now go into communion. And this is the place for you because you're going to need to calm down. And by coming forward, partaking of his body and blood, you're saying, I can't do this. I'm in need of you. So I receive your body and your blood. And then after that, if you want to pray with someone, you can to your right or left. Let's now go before the Lord. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the encouragement in the midst of such hard words like these. That Jesus, you are with us. You are in us if we call you our Lord. And yet it's going to hurt. It costs a lot. It's painful. And in the midst of that, we can find the change we've been looking for, the life we've been hoping for. And so I pray now as we come before your table, we will be met with your beautiful, inviting, wonderful, gracious presence. And we'd find ourselves compelled now to really surrender what it is that we need to. In Jesus' name, amen.